All right. All right. So let me get, whew, get all organized here. Um, open your Bibles to Psalm 24. If you're familiar with Psalm 23, it's right after that. Um, Psalm 24, we will read that in just a moment. How many people, show of hands, who is, or do you know who is, I don't know if that's English, do you know who Kyrie Irving is? Point guard, Cleveland Cavaliers, you get 10 points and you're ahead of the game. Kyrie Irving is not just a, a basketball player for the Cleveland Cavaliers, he's an amazing basketball player for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Him, along with his team, won the, the, the championship last year. Uh, first time Cleveland had any kind of a championship in like 3,000 years. It was really special for them. And Kyrie Irving was a pivotal part of that team. This past couple of weeks, he was voted to the NBA All-Star Game. That means he's one of the best of the best in the league and uh, was chosen by his peers and by his fans to be one of the best players. Well, during that weekend, during an interview, uh, he shared his belief that the earth is flat. That the earth, let me say that again, that the earth is flat. Okay, now, maybe you're all flat earthers too. I didn't know this. We got some stuff to talk about. When I read that, I thought, surely a man who went to Duke University, well-educated, very wealthy, very uh, uh, top of his uh, profession, surely cannot believe something that's been disproven for years. But no, not only does he believe that the earth is flat, there are lots of people who believe that the earth is flat. Well, I always see every time I drive and I walk and it's flat and, you know, they have their theories and it's always coupled in with the moon landing being a hoax and 9-11 being a hoax and all these other conspiracy theories and, and it gets really convoluted, really murky, really fast. My point is this, um, other than the fact that I'm still just blown away by somebody thinking the earth is flat, oftentimes science is seen as the enemy of freedom or decision or choice. As a, as a citizen of this country, Kyrie Irving's free to believe whatever he'd like. Regardless of evidence, regardless of science, regardless of what other people might say, he is free to believe that if he likes and more power to him. I don't agree with him. Most people don't. Here's the point. As Christians in the last couple of years especially, there has been this war this war between science and faith culminating with things like uh, Bill Nye the science guy debating with Ken Ham uh, from Answers in Genesis uh, debating over creationism and evolution and it becoming a, a publicized thing and people taking sides. And if you've noticed any trend in our country specifically over the last few years, people really like taking sides. They really like hurling their beliefs at other people hoping to impose their belief upon someone else. Generally speak, speaking, broad stroke uh, analogy, most people aren't looking to be convinced, they're looking to convince someone else. And so when it comes to debate, there is no debate, it's just an argument. And most people walk away more solidified in their own beliefs than before the argument began. And then they start hurling out insults like, you know, you're an imbecile or you're uneducated or you're, you're old fashioned or you're threatened by this or you're homophobic or you're xenophobic or you're a Nazi or you're, I mean, things just start getting thrown out there without even thinking about the repercussions of what those words might mean to the person they're being said to. Now, why do I say all that? 
Because today we're gonna look at creation and unwillingly we find ourselves on a side. We find ourselves taking a side in the battle. Now we're not purposefully doing that, but by default, by choosing to believe in what the Bible says about creation, we now find ourselves on a side. And I said this last week, I'll say it again. Don't pick sides, pick Jesus' side. Don't pick the right or the left, pick Jesus. You're gonna find that Jesus most often is glorified not in one particular side, but in a culmination of the two. He is generally two sides of the same coin. So you find a God who is a God of love. He loves us so much that he would send his only begotten son, that he would die on a cross for our sins, not for his own sins, the Bible says, that, that, that love would pour out upon the cross for us. The shed blood of the son of God would cleanse us from our sin. Why is that necessary? Because the other side of that coin says that God is a God of wrath and we have deserved that wrath because of our sin. God is not a God of wrath exclusively. God is not a God of love exclusively. He is both. And his wrath has been satisfied by his own love and sacrifice for us. This is why we bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. We bring our faith and that's it. We bring our faith in Christ and God does everything else. His sacrifice has paid for our sin. And so today, when it comes to creation, creation is pivotal to the gospel message. There are some Christians who believe in evolution, more power to them, I'm not here to judge them. But I find that there is more credibility in the story of creation than there is in the theory of evolution. Psalm 24 and one says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now this is the word boldly declaring about itself or about God's self, who he is and his authority. But I also want you to see this as the writer of this psalm. This is a, a person who is a spectator this is someone moved by the Holy Spirit, yes, but they're also on the outside looking in. They're looking at the world and saying, the complexity of it, the hugeness of it, the vastness of it, surely someone has created it, made it, and sustains it. And they attribute that to God. The Bible throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, there's never any doubt imposed that God's authority over creation is still as much there as it has been since the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you are atheist or agnostic, if you are uh, just not on board with Christianity yet, the Bible hits you between the eyes in the first line of the first book. It makes the assertion that God created everything. That in the beginning, so time is determined by God, God created, all things were made by him. Today's sermon is actually very, very simple. God, we believe that God has created everything, but there's a purpose behind that creation. Often we fall into the trap that somehow this world revolves around us, don't we? And maybe the best of us hold it off more than others, but there are times where our pride gets the best of us and gosh darn it, if our needs are not the most important thing in the world. And the Bible declares otherwise. 
Yes, we have needs. And if you have needs today, I'm not here to downplay those as, you know, just forget about them, that sort of thing. No, that's not what I mean. But to be so inward and self-focused that you propel yourself or lift yourself up to the position of where God should be, you're finding yourself in error. And you're also finding yourself in a place that leads to a lot of pain. And you will lead yourself to a place where ultimately you're going to repent anyways of that mindset because God will show you the folly of your choice. The Bible claims the work of creation determines the beginning. The Bible makes no apologies, makes no excuses for God's authority over creation and his, not just his ability to create, but the fact that he's the only one that could create. In all of human history, there has been nobody, nobody who can create something from nothing. This is where creation, for me, supersedes evolution because ultimately you have nothing that leads to something and, and we have no evidence of that anywhere. Everywhere you look, from the cars in the parking lot to the computer in our sound room to the guitars that are up here. I mean, when I, when I go to a guitar shop and I look at a guitar, I marvel at the craftsmanship. I, I understand the intricacies that are needed to make this, this instrument sound amazing from the gears within the tuners, the, the type of strings and the metals and the alloys that are used within that, the wood that's used, the, the veneer or the lacquer that's on the outside, the electronics that amplify the sound. I mean, it's an incredibly meticulously created instrument and that's just a guitar. That's just the ability to strum six strings and make a melody out of it. Now think about the earth and, and, and I was reading about an animal, anybody familiar with the echidna? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's only found in Australia. It's this tiny little animal. It's about the size of a house cat. It's got quills like a porcupine. It's got a bill like a duck. It lays eggs, uh, but it's a mammal. It's warm-blooded, but it's on the lower end uh, of, of blood temperatures. And it burrows for ants uh, like an anteater, but it has electromagnetic uh, impulses in its, in its bill like a shark to detect life that's around it so it can find more ants and grubs. And it, is, it confounds science because it's like, it's like, you know, have you ever just been to a potluck and, and you're trying to clean up and you scrape everything into one plate, throw it away? You, you know, you got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and then you got this hodgepodge of weirdness. Like, that's what the echidna is. It's like, it, none of it makes sense, but here you got this little, this little cute little duck-billed echidna that nobody can explain why it is this way. I look at that and go, man, that's an amazing animal. Have you ever seen a lion like attack? Oh, to watch his muscles and, and his face snarl and his hair and his mane just flow. And it's like, that's a majestic, amazing beast. Or, or an elephant, like take off. We went to the, the, the zoo in Syracuse one year. This was like 10 years ago, maybe longer. It was when they had the smaller elephant confinement. And uh, I thought I'd be smart. And I was like, just pretending to make big elephant noise. And this elephant was facing me and he turned like this and he took his trunk and went, Phew, with dirt and he nailed me with it. Oh, it was amazing. Like, it didn't really get me that dirty, but I thought, what an intelligent creature. He's sarcastic. Like, he's not gonna put up with any of my baloney. Like, I just, man, that's so great. Have you ever just seen or gone to places that were just incredible? Anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? I get like, I don't know what's called, the bends or something. I get something where I get to the Grand Canyon. It's so massive. Like, I'm like, I don't know if I can sustain the, the, being so close to something so big. And you just look and it's this ca I don't know, chasm, cavern, whatever, for like miles. It's 
this is amazing. And you're in Arizona or wherever, yeah, Arizona, and the skyline's beautiful, and you're just like, oh my gosh. This few months ago, did you guys see that in, um, in the Redwood Forest in California, the big tree that you could drive through, it fell over? Oh, that thing was like thousands of years old. One of the biggest tourist attractions, you could drive your car through it, pictures upon pictures on the internet of people who've done that. And now nobody else will ever do that again because it fell over, just nature, just toppled it. It stood there for who knows how long, 4,000, 5,000 years. I mean, it was an incredible tree reaching high up into the heavens, just amazing. I mean, it's snowing. It was 71 the other day. We were outside. I didn't wear a jacket. It was, I had my sunglasses on. It was beautiful. Bugs were coming out. Things were blooming. And I was like, man, you guys came out too early. Yeah, you guys got to see where this is going. It's going to happen. And sure enough, there's the snow. The weather is incredible. You look at the rainforests and you look at Antarctica and, and, and either, either, domestically or internationally, wherever you're going, there are these places that are just beautiful. And the Bible attributes everything to the work of God, to the hand of God and created by him. But this leads us to a lot of questions. I wrote down some questions and surely these aren't an exhaustive list of questions. They're actually, some of them are pulled from when we did our Ask Your Pastor series. We had a couple questions about creation because Here's what we are victim to. And we shouldn't be victim to this. We shouldn't fall prey to this. We are victims of the media. Meaning the media pins two people together and we're forced to pick a side. And we often believe everything that's said about the other side while defending what's being said about us. If what you believe to be said about your side is a lie and what they're saying about them is truth, I want you to know it's probably both. There's some things that are true about your side and there are th things that are a lie and vice versa. Because for the media, it's not about picking sides, it's about making sides and getting ratings and getting clicks and getting viewers and making money from advertising. That's all that media is about. No one, everybody, you know why everybody has breaking news when something happens? Because they want their video feed seen the most. I remember being a kid, there was three, three channels. I was one of the last generations to have that. Now you got Netflix, you watch whatever you want. And if the president was speaking, well, your evening was done because he was going to be on all three channels. Why? Because all three channels, ABC, NBC, CBS, they all want you watching their address. Same exact broadcast. But if they get more viewers, then they can charge more for advertising and they can make more money. So when you become a victim of the media, sometimes you're forced into a side that maybe it isn't really your side. But that being said, it leads to a lot of questions. And as Christians, we are called to have discernment. We are called to question things. Some people will come to me and say, Pastor, I don't mean to you know, come against your authority or disrespect you. I'm gonna ask you a question. I, have, I am not threatened in the least by your comments or your questions. I encourage your comments because I am not above you. I, am not some, I have not found secret knowledge that only I have access to. You know, I do not have a bunch of golden plates that reveal to me the secrets of the world. Um, that, that's not what we do. I have the word of God like you have the word of God and we're called to come together to complete the mosaic picture, the tapestry that is the gospel of Jesus. But here's some of those questions that we need to ask. Is Genesis specifically, because that deals specifically with the seven day creation story, is that literal or poetic? 
Is God sharing with us exactly how it happened? Or is the author of the book of Genesis using poetic liberty? Yes, the answer is yes. As you read the book of Genesis, is it poetic? Absolutely. It's beautifully written. It's, it's well formulated. It's not, um, as some people will say, old-fashioned or uh, unintelligent. It's very well formulated. It's, it's, it's meticulously written down in such a way that is beautiful, but yet also giving us the account of how God created the earth. He created things in stages or by days. On the seventh day, he rested. The sixth day, he created man. And then, and then from Genesis 2 on, he kind of delves into that sixth day and talks about the creation of man and how he created Adam from the dirt and breathed his life into his nostrils. And, and, and then Adam was used to name all the creatures on the earth. But there was no uh, suitable helper found for Adam. So God puts him to sleep, takes a rib out of him, creates Eve, and then he unites them in marriage, the first marriage covenant we have in the Bible. And the Bible says that's how God created that's how God created the earth. Now fast forward thousands of years, now Jesus is walking in his public ministry. Jesus claims to be the son of God. Jesus claims that he's not just a, a, a demi-God or, or, or partial God or godly, but that he is of God, that he is the son of God. Him and God are one. That he is God in the form of a man sent to earth on this mission trip to save us sinners. And so he comes and he affirms creation. He affirms not just creation, but the creation of man and the creation of woman and how they were to be united as male and female and become one and that man should not tear what, apart what God has put together. God conveys to us what we want, or excuse me, what he wants us to know about creation. This does not answer all of our questions though. If you have children, you understand, you can answer their question perfectly. It leads to more questions, doesn't it? Well, but why? Well, how does a computer work? I don't know, there's RAM and gigs and something, but why? What's a RAM? I don't know, son. I'll take you to the Genius Bar at Apple, let them explain, explain it to you. I don't, I don't know. It just, if I have more, the computer goes faster. If I have less, it goes slower, and I want to check my laptop out the window. That's all I know. Why is the sky blue? Well, there's lots of scientific reasons. Well, tell me some. Well, let me get Wikipedia. I don't know. But the Bible tells us how God created and when God created. We, I'm a young earth believer, which I believe that the earth as we know it now is probably between seven to 10,000 years old. But what about science? Science says that the earth is billions of years old. The, the Jurassic era, era and, and different, different eras throughout the earth and, and, and different times. And, and, and do I dispute that? I actually don't dispute that either. We'll get to that in a minute. Oftentimes the question that comes up is faith or science? I have to choose one of them. I almost brought, and maybe none of you know, even know what this is, but there's a movie called Nacho Libre. Anybody ever seen Nacho Libre? Nacho Libre, he's a, he's a Mexican wrestler. His parents were missionaries, one Protestant, one Catholic. They got married, had Nacho. He grew up in an orphanage for some reason. He has this sidekick and he believes in science. And they're always at odds. One's got faith, one's got science. I almost played the clip. And I thought, no, that's just for me. I'm not gonna do that. My point is this, we've been tricked into thinking you have to choose one or the, uh, the other. There is only two sides and you have to choose both. I, I'm here to tell you that if science is true, then it will affirm the God who created everything. I do not believe that God can be boxed in by the humans he created. 
If God is the God he says he is through his word, then science will only continue to prove that time and time again. And it has, as long as there's been good, honest, scientific, truly scientific research done, when there is an agenda, like let's say, oh, disproving God, then your agenda is already tainted. It's like when you're trying to investigate someone's guilt and you assume that they're guilty, you start looking for ways to make them guilty. This is why in our country we assume innocence first. Because if we assume guilt, we're gonna find a reason for them to be guilty. So when your agenda is set forth to, to, to prove your desires, you're gonna find a way to prove that. Good science says, look, here's our theory. Let's run it through to its logical end. And let's accept the results of whatever we come up with. Has anybody ever seen the Ben Stein documentary? Um, what is that called? Expelled, I think it was called. I could be wrong, but his, his whole thing, Ben Stein being a, uh, from Jewish descent, decides to, to study what, why is there such a debate between or, or a battle between evolution and creationism or intelligent design? And he interview, interviews a lot of people on the Christian side or the Catholic side. And he interviews others on the scientific side. And it's never about proving one or the other. It's, it's the debate. Why, why does it have to clash? Why, why can't one support the other or not support, but why can't these coexist? Why is there so, for especially from the evolutionary side, why is there so much hatred towards the creation side? You often find that there's an agenda. Someone, their parents died in an early age. The, they were abused or, or they saw God as the culprit in something that happened or that he was silent when he most needed them so God must not be there so now I must prove that God does not exist. So when there's no agenda, when, when it's good scientific research, when, when people's agendas are set aside and the results are all that matter, you find God again in his creation proven time and time again. We might see things like microevolution. That's where we see, you know, multiple breeds of dogs. You know, if you have a labradoodle, you had what we would call a microevolution. You have a lab and a poodle put together and they've made a new species or not a new species, same species, a new breed. You know, if you have a, a particular type of cat and it breeds with that same particular cat, you're going to begat or begot, that's the word the Bible uses, that same type of cat. And those two cats coming together will not breed the echidna, or cow or any other, you know, it'll have another feline come from it. And same thing with humans. Two humans come together, they make another human. And so we might see different races and we might see different genders and we might see uh, different nationalities based on where they're born and different skin color and different accents and the way eyes are positioned and hair color and things like that. But we'll still be human beings at the end of the day. There will be no, there will be no variation of that or, or, or some type of mix, if you will. I come to you, I'm, a, I'm of mixed heritage. My father is Hispanic. My mother is from the South somewhere or her grandparents are. So white and Mexican is pretty much what I am. And my parents produced another human who was a half Mexican and half white person. And I take pride in both my heritages and and, uh, you know, find reasons for shame in both of them, but find reasons to rejoice in both of them as well. And very glad to just be who I am. And many of you, you're a melting pot, just like the rest of our country. And uh, that speaks to the idea of microevolution, but not macroevolution, meaning, you know, we've produced some new species by combining two humans together. 
the age of the earth. I talked about that just a moment ago. I, like I said, I'm a young earther. Genesis 1-2 says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is where something called the gap theory comes from. It's not a very good theory. So I don't share it with you like, hey, believe in this. I'm just sharing it with you because you'll come across it in any kind of creation study that you might do. The gap theory is that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there could be billions of years. That the earth was here before God started creating it. It was just without form and void. Exactly what that means and how that looks, none of us really know because we weren't there to witness it. Um, when you study the words that the author is using in Genesis, that word that without void, it's really the same type of word it uses for waste. Um, if I could be, I don't mean to be crude, but it's the same word for urine. It's waste, it's, it's, it's just bad grossness. That there was something there, but it wasn't really much to look at. And then God spoke, light was created, that sort of thing. My theory and this is something I share with you, not as gospel again, it's just what I believe, that somewhere in there is where we find the age of the earth that goes into the billions of years. Could the gap theory explain uh, the earth being billions of years old? Maybe. Assuming that those who, who claim the earth to, be, earth to be billions of years old aren't looking to you know, dis disprove Christianity or creationism or intelligent design, then yeah, maybe. Could this be where the... Um, uh, what, what, what was that? The, the, the rock, it came and hit in the crater and the dinosaurs died. I can't think of the name of it, but is this where the dinosaurs, maybe. There are Christians who will just say, no, dinosaurs never existed. Well, that's just foolish. There are thousands of skeleton, skeletal remains you can find all over the earth that disprove that. Big ones, massive ones, really cool looking ones. Did dinosaurs exist? Yes, absolutely. When did they exist? I don't know. I don't come to you today as a scientist. If I was a scientist, I might get paid more. I'd probably still be in school and I'd probably be like using words that are really big that I can't understand. I come to you not as a scientist. I come to you as a preacher. I come to you as a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. Did dinosaurs exist? Did God create them when he created the rest of the animals? Maybe. There certainly are a lot of animals that bear resemblance to some of the skeletal remains that are found and they're a lot bigger. I mean, the, the, the bones are a lot bigger, but we find animals now that kind of represent that, that kind of look the same. There are some theories that in Genesis, when God created, there was a different environment that, that was existing. They call it the water canopy theory. Um, it says that when God created, you know, he put a firmament, firmament between the, the, you know, up above and below and some people believe that that's when, you know, back then, that's why so many people could live for so long. It was something to do with the environment and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, honestly, it, it, you could go down these rabbit trails all day long. They'll never satisfy that. Well, what exactly happened? We have what God wants us to know in the creation story of the first seven days. Here's, here's the one I really want you to take home. Are all things discovered? No. Here's what, here's what people would like us to believe that everything's been discovered, everything's been found out. Do not doubt what we say because we know all things. And if you were to say that 50 years ago and then transport to today, time travel, if you will, wouldn't those people be blown away by what they see? I mean, just, just imagine cars for a moment, 50 years ago. 
three miles to the gallon, as big as a boat driving down the road. And to tell them, yeah, one day we'll have a car that's, a hi- we'll call it a hybrid, and it'll get 50, 60 miles to the gallon. Oh, you're crazy. That's never happened. Or, or to, to tell them that, you know, the world's tallest building would be this big, or there'd be 7 billion people on the planet. Or, or in our pockets, we'd have basically a supercomputer that we use to play Candy Crush with. I mean, if we were to tell them things like that, they'd be like, no, but, but look at the last 50 years. Imagine going back 100 years to the Wright brothers and telling them, oh, you know that little thing you just floated across that, that field right there? Within 60 years or 70 years, we're gonna take something like that to the moon. No, we just barely got this thing off the ground. Yeah, but things are gonna change. We're gonna discover things about aerodynamics and propulsion and, 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 and gravity and all of these things. And we're gonna go and we're gonna send out satellites and we're, you'd blow their little minds, wouldn't you? So, so know this, that in your generation, in your lifetime, things are gonna happen over the next few years and decades that are gonna blow you away. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that we could do this. Flying cars? I mean, we've been dreaming for that one for a while, but man, I'm looking forward to drive, flying cars. I mean, can you just imagine flying a car somewhere? No, we're gonna crash them, but it's gonna be fun in the meantime, isn't it? I'm sure there'll be plenty of airbags and insurance will skyrocket, but it'll be fun for a little while. If you watch that documentary by Ben Stein, he'll to, often ask the question, you know, what was science 50 years ago? Put it into a car or, or, or a vehicle, science then and science now. And they'll say things like, well, science back then was like a 1968 Buick and science now is like a 707, you know, jumbo jet. The complexity has been, what we've discovered about atoms and quirks or quarks or whatever they're called and string theory and black holes and what we've discovered over the last few decades just dwarfs what we've known for the previous thousands of years. Not all things have been discovered. This last week, what happened? We discovered, what, seven new planets that could sustain life somewhere out in the galaxy. Little old Pluto back here going, you know, I could, be a, I could step in for one of them. Like, you, you can make me a planet again, but no, you gotta go find seven new planets. It's like Pluto stuck in the friend zone of, of the solar system. That was a funny joke. Somebody tweet that one. But not everything has been discovered. As soon as we think we've got everything all figured out, we discover something new that either adds to or completely obliterates the previous theory. And so I want you to walk away with this hope that if there are answers that you cannot find in the Bible about science, understand that as time goes on, they will be discovered. Archaeology and science will continue to unveil or unravel that which the Bible has declared for thousands of years. But so what? So God created everything. Okay, let's give him that this morning. Let's just, let's just all come to group. God created everything, but so what? All that does is tell us who made something. Why did God make something? Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why did he create us as people? Especially in light of the fact that we messed everything up within 10 minutes or at least seemingly from the story. Don't eat that tree. Okay, I'm gonna eat of the tree. No, don't eat of the tree. Okay, I won't. But you didn't tell my wife. (laughs) And then they eat of the tree and they sin and they're expelled from the garden. As quick as they're in, it seems like they're out. Why? The Bible tells us why. To glorify the Son. Colossians 1 and 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He is preeminent is what that means. He is, he is the, the, the first of all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross is often referred to as a bridge. I think that's a pretty good analogy or a pretty good description. At the fall of man, everything was alienated away from God, divided from God, separated from God and his holiness. Because a holy God will not commingle with sin. And the Bible says that in Jesus, all things were reconciled. The book of Romans speaks about how creation moans. It, it longs to, be, to have things made right. That within animals, that fear that they have of us as humans, the fear of, 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 of just in general of being threatened by prey and predator and, 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 and all of that, that's part of that groaning out. They, they understand, creation understands that things aren't right. When you go to a funeral because someone's passed away, death is not right. That's not how things were meant for us, but sin came and ruined all of that. Death is not supposed to be natural. We can accept it as such, and maybe that helps us to cope, but, but the next time you go to a funeral, realize, man, when God created man, that this was... This was all anticipated, yes, but man, you know, this part, how complex is it? It's not natural, it's, now it's, but now we have this that's supernatural. That the firstborn of all creation is also the firstborn of all that have been resurrected. That we have, though been, we've been created once, we have become a new creation through Jesus Christ. Today, all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our love resides and should reside in one person and one person alone. M many of us are in trouble here today because we've placed our faith and our hope in something rather than someone. We've believed in our political party. We believed in our affiliations. We believed in our marriages. We believed in our children. We put our faith and our hope in everything else but Jesus and seen Jesus kind of like the golden ticket in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's just gonna get us out of hell and get us into heaven and everything else in the meantime is just nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Today, if you give your life to Christ, everything changes. You become a brand new creation. Well, I don't like the Bible. I don't like the church. I don't like prayer. Yeah, most people don't until they meet Jesus and then he starts working on them and the next thing you know, they wanna pray. And next thing you know, they read their word and they understand it. And next thing you know, they like going to church, not because the people are great, though you people are, they go there because they understand the importance of being together with like-minded people. They're not all, we're not all the same. We don't all like the same stuff, but, but by golly, we all love each other and want to serve the same God. And so today, if you're trying to love the word or love God or love prayer or love the church, before you know Jesus, it's going to be really hard for you. But if you will give your life to Jesus today, he will begin a new work in you where those things become an extension of him through you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You begin to develop a love for people that, man, they're just unlovable. You begin to see them as Christ sees them. You begin to see, wait, this is, um, this is not just some person. This is somebody that Christ died for.
and I could brush them off and I could, you know, ignore them or I can realize, man, I'm in their life for a reason. I got, I got, a, I got something to say. I got something to do. I'm going I'm to try to figure out what that is. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Lord because the Lord loves this person as much as he loves me. And so, the earth was created not just for you and me. I mean, we benefit from it, right? I mean, we're going to eat the delicious food that grows on it. We're going to enjoy the stuff that's made by the people who live here and that exist here. But this was all created for Christ. It wasn't created for us. And the Bible says you're sustained by Christ. That means your heart's going to keep beating until Jesus wants it to no longer beat. You're only going to live as long as he wants you to live. Sometimes I have folks, they want us to pray for people that clearly just want to go home. And they come from a place, and I'll just say this, they come from a place of selfishness. They don't want to lose that person. And so what I'll do is I'll pray, Lord, your will be done because I don't want these people to, I mean, they're obviously in pain. They're obviously suffering. It would be much better for them to be healed by you and to be in glory with you in this moment. And then help the people who are obviously going to hurt. Being in pain because someone's passed away that you love dearly is not a bad thing. But understand this, the healing that's found in passing from this life to the next is not something that we should prolong somebody from if that's what the Lord's asking or what the Lord is commanding to have done. But Paul tells the Colossian church, Jesus sustains everything. Life as we know it, it's sustained. It, it's, it's, it's made by God. It's, it, it's, it's created by God. It's, it keeps going because of God. And I would submit to you that's probably why murder is so much of a sin. Because you step in the line of God and try to take that life out. You step into the place of God rather than having God step into the place of Godship. First John chapter one, excuse me, the gospel of John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was, it, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not anything, uh, not anything made that was made. And without him was not anything made that was made. Sorry. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The purpose of our faith today is Jesus. The focus of our lives today is Jesus. Jesus is referred to in the word as the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the, the first and the last uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. He's not just the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the middle and the end. He's everything. The same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says. Everything you see is meant to glorify Jesus. So much so that even in Romans chapter eight, Paul tells that church that all things work for the good of those who are called according to the purpose of God. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but no matter what happens to you in your life, even the bad things are going to glorify Jesus. Look at the life of Christ. Look at all the bad things that happened to him and how God was glorified in them. Look at the life of men like Joseph and Moses and David and Paul and Peter and John and James and the apostles who were, who were crucified and martyred for their faith. Look at the early church who were fed to lions and dipped in wax and lit on fire for their faith. Look at the church around the globe today that are being beheaded and set on fire for not converting to another religion but even those things glorify God. Why and how he does that, that's all him.
not here to try to soften the God that we serve and make him more palatable to you. These things happen and God has promised to make them good someday. Either now, but definitely in heaven where all tears are wiped away, all people come together, everyone of one single purpose, no longer any division. It's the day that we anxiously await. We anxiously await the return of Jesus Christ. See, if you knock down creation, you knock down a lot of the rest of the gospel. We, are, we would be classified as a church as fundamentalists. It's kind of a bad word nowadays. Usually when people say that, what they mean is they'll take your life for some reason. They radically will try to impose their faith upon you to the point of hurting or maybe even taking your life. That's not what fundamentalism means. We believe that the Bible is fundamentally true. We mean, what we mean by that is we do not question it. We are to live from it. We don't improve upon it like we even could. We don't take away from it. Oftentimes I find people really love their God because they make their God. When was the last time your God told you something that made you mad? If your God often tells you things that make you mad, you're probably serving the right God. If he always tells you something you want to hear, it's always good and everything you've done is approved by him. If that's what you're hearing, I would just go back to the word of God. I would start asking some questions. Well, why can that person not do it? Or why does your word say that I can or cannot do this or that? Maybe the God that you serve is the God of your own creation or you've taken Jesus and you've just added to him or taken away from him. My God tells me to do things or to not do things all the time and I, I'm like, what? Why? Why do I have to do that? Or why can't I do that? Or why can't I ignore this person? Or why do I have to say this? Like last week, I really felt like we had to preach about sex and I was like, why? Why do I have to talk about that? Can't we just do it in private with like every person of the church, not, you know, up here in the pulpit on Facebook Live and stuff, but did it anyways. Felt the Lord wanting it to be corrected and taught. Why? Why, that per- why do I have to love that person? Why do, I have to, why do I have to be friendly right now when I'm angry? Why do I have to turn the other cheek when nobody else is turning the other cheek? Why do, why do I have to love my enemies when nobody else is? Why do I have to suffer when it seems like everybody else has it easy? Why do they have that thing and why don't I? all the time. And I come back to the same answers. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All this stuff is his stuff. All this stuff was meant for him. All this stuff is meant to glorify him. We can marvel at it, but if it points us away from Jesus, you know what? Keep the Grand Canyon, keep the Redwoods, keep the rainforest, keep all that stuff. I see them as glorifying Jesus, as the word says. That being said, as we conclude this sermon series, the point of what we believe is not to impose our beliefs upon you as a church. The we in this phrase or this title is what the Bible says. What I believe and what I say is second to what the word says. What you believe and what you say is second to what the word says. The word is our standard. Well, I have a question about this. Well, let's see what the word of God says. Well, what about what about divorce? Well, let's see what the word of God says. What about adultery? What about, what about giving? What about loving? What about sharing? What about serving? What about refugees? What about immigrants? What about, uh, what about election? Who should I vote for? What should I do? I don't like this president. What do I do? What does the word of God say? 
I don't want to go to church. What does the word of God say? I don't want to read the word. What does the word of God say? I don't want to serve Jesus. What does the word of God say? I don't think I'm a sinner. What does the word of God say? I don't think I could be forgiven. What does the word of God say? I don't think he could love me. What does the word of God say? He could never clean up my sins. What does the word of God say? The word of God says, all your sins can be forgiven in Jesus. But I, I, I don't think I can, I'll just work it off. What does the word of God say? The grace of God is a gift so that you can't earn it. You can't take any more than he gives to you. You can't do anything that makes anything right that you've done in the past, but everything Jesus has done on the cross will correct and cleanse you of all of that. You'll still feel guilty over it. And if you've done bad things in the past, there should be some healthy guilt there. You should never walk away and say, yep, I did that and I'm okay. No. But you no longer have to feel condemned by it either. It is no longer a mark against you when it comes to standing before God because now you stand in the righteousness that is Christ. And now your sins are forgiven. Should you put your faith in Jesus today? Some people, well, I did that when I was 11. Okay, and what did that turn into? Nothing, I'm the same person I was then than I am now. Only I'm older and I sin better. Well, then maybe that wasn't really conversion. Maybe that wasn't really a changed life. Maybe that was just a prayer you prayed. Now, some folks I know did that and they were on fire from Christ that moment for the rest of their life. That's awesome. But if you're today, you're saying, well, I did that then and I think I'm good, I'm getting to heaven. But you're not living like Christ today. Then I would just, I would tell you, do some self-reflection. Have I really committed my ways to Christ? Have I really put all of my proverbial eggs into his basket? If, 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 The Bible says in Proverbs 3, I believe, you know, lean not on your own understanding. It's the idea if you were leaning against a wall, all your weight were up against it. Like if I was leaning up against this, all my weight's on it. But if this gets moved, I'm in trouble. If this moves, I'm going to fall. You're to lean so much on the Lord that if the Lord should move, you'd fall. The good news is, is he won't move. But the command is still there to lean upon the Lord, to give yourself to him, to commit your ways to him, to make repentance a daily practice. Lord, I did it again. I'm sorry. He must never get tired of hearing us repent because he allows us to do so. Roe, I think, asked last week, well, you know, doesn't, it made the comment about someone saying, you know, uh, doesn't it just give you license to sin? No. If you meet Christ, you'll understand the devastation of your sin and you'll never want to do it again. You'll, You'll find yourself trapped. You will make bad choices and you'll get there and you'll be convicted. It won't feel the same. You will not rejoice. You'll not say that was great. You go, man, I cannot believe I did that. I cannot believe I betrayed the God who died to save me. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So repentance, repentance is what we're called to. To say we're sorry, to do a 180. Repentance is really saying I'm, I'm walking towards sin. Damn, I'm turning around. I drink too much alcohol. I, I know it's a vice. I know it's a thing. I got, I got to, Lord, I repent. That doesn't mean you just keep drinking and you're forgiven. That means, okay, now I got I to gotta stop this. Lord, I need your help to do this. I'm really angry. I'm bitter all the time. I got roots of bitterness in my heart. What do I do? Oh, I got to repent of that. Lord, I need you to, to change my heart, renew in me a right spirit and change my heart. You see, what we believe is that the word of God has given us all we need to know 
And there are a multitude, a plethora of other questions we have, but this is our foundation. These are the things that we, we, if we're all reading the same Bible, we should all come to the same conclusions, more or less. That Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and in his blood is atonement for the sins of the world only. That there are no, no, no other paths to God, there is no other holy word, that there is no other body upon this earth other than the church which God moves through. That God loves us very much. More than we can fathom and more than we'd like to admit from time to time. So how do we respond to that? Well, if you're new and you haven't given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus today. It's very simple. Lord, I come to you. Here I am. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are the son of God. It's not a script. It's not, you know, you don't have to say those words verbatim. But the seeking of forgiveness, the, the coming to the Lord in his authority and in worship, well, that's where we start. If you have done this for a while and you're feeling convicted today, well, same thing. Give your life to Jesus. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Generally, the only time we don't say sorry is when pride's involved, right? Wife, husband, bicker. I'm not saying I'm sorry. They should say they're sorry, not me. I'm not sorry. But then you kind of wait and you let the Lord work on you like, eh, you know what, that was kind of a jerk. Even if I, was, even if I still think I'm right, I, I said it in the most jerky way. No wonder I made her mad or no wonder I made him mad. And so, if that's your relationship with Christ, understand, the perfect son of God's probably not wrong. And so somewhere along the path, you veered off whether foolishly or unbeknownst to yourself, you just found yourself off the path. Today's, today's the day to get back on the path. The straight, the narrow, the following of Christ. And you repent. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. And I like to go to the Lord in honesty. Lord, I'm probably gonna go back. Not because I want to. I just look back at the history of my life and go, man, I'm the worst. But I want in my spirit more than anything to not be that person anymore. I don't want to go back to that, Lord. I don't, I don't want, I would lie to you today to say I'd never do it. So I come to you and I ask for your help to never do it again. I don't want to do it. So I need your help to overcome this. And here's the thing, there is real, real, a real possibility and chance you may never go back to that again. You don't know, Pastor Tony, it's impossible. No, no, no. The Bible's very clear. With, all, with the Lord, all things are possible. You may battle with this sin the rest of your life. You may conquer this sin and find a new one rise up. Hey, I stopped smoking, but man, I can't stop eating. Ah, sin just found a new way to get his claws in you. Give your life to Christ today. Be in community with this church. I find that God doesn't take a lot, God doesn't take dirty sinners and put them in the place of really perfect people in hopes that they get cleaned up. He takes dirty sinners and puts them into former reformed uh, dirty sinners and somehow through that mess, he's glorified. I don't know how he does it, but he does. Do not come in with the preconceived notion that we're all perfect and we're looking down upon you. We're like, man, we know what that's like. 
we've been there. This morning, we were there. Let's just worship Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and repent. So maybe next week we come in and go, man, it's been a whole week since I did that thing. I did these other things. I gotta repent for those now. But, but man, be in community, read your word. Paul says just knowing, in the book of Romans, just knowing the law of God, all that did was propelling me the ability to sin. It's a really weird chapter, chapter seven. He does, we don't need the law to prevent us from sinning. We need the law giver to save us from the wrath of the law. So read your word, pray. Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm in a dark place. I hurt. I don't understand. I'm scared. The Lord's, a, the Lord's a big God. He can handle your words. I'm mad at you, God. I'm mad you did this. You could have stopped it. Why didn't you? He can take it. He can handle it. Read the Psalms. Where are you, God? My enemies are surrounding me. They're gonna overtake me. I'm going to die. These are the words that people like King David used. But then they would end with, but Lord, you are God. You will make a table in the presence of my enemies, Psalm 23 says. My enemies may look big, they may look strong, they may look prosperous, but man, in the end, even if they should take this life, all they've done, Paul says, is sent me to be with my Lord. And so today, stand in love, stand in Christ, know that his wrath towards you has been satisfied and no longer hangs over your head. You are free. You are liberated by your faith in Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Then we'll take a couple of questions and then we'll go home. Father God, it's, it's our hope and our desire not just to know what your word says, but to know what it says and to be in agreement with one another. Meaning that we are on the same page going in the same direction following after you. It's not, it's not our desire that we'd have this clique or this faction or this division here or these people, this camp over here, that we would have our own uh, unity without having to be uniform. That we could be ourselves as you've created us while, while coming together as the body. Your word is clear. Some of us are elbows, some of us are hands, some of us are legs, some of us are shoulders in the body of Christ. None is better than the other. We're all needed to complete the body. So Father, I pray today that for your people, for those who find themselves outside of following you, today I pray that, that this would be the day they hear your voice, that they, that they hear that call of the Holy Spirit, those words that even right now are going deeper than my own words are, that I'm speaking. Lord, that it would speak to, he would speak to their hearts and change them today. That whatever hardness might be there would soften that their arms would be thrown up in surrender. For those who have maybe done that before and now find themselves distant from you today, may today be their day as well. For everyone else, wherever they find themselves, and we're probably in one of these two camps, Lord, I just pray that you would be glorified in our lives. As we are part of this creation, Lord, may we glorify you. May people see Jesus in what we do and how we speak and how we interact, Lord. We, may we not fall into the pitfalls and, and, and become victims of the traps that are set by our culture. May we stand firm in the truth of your word. May we trust that no matter what man may do to us, 
It would prosper us nothing to abandon you and your word. Help us to stand firm upon the foundation that you've laid for us, the foundation that is Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the one who has been set forth to guide us and to build us up. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Have a seat. I'll take a couple minutes. If there's any questions,